Hello and good evening. This is the great Johannes podcast. This is Johannes speaking. Uh, I'm watching the first viewers come in. So this is live. It's uh, unscripted. I do my podcast on the fly. But of course, I do have uh, my bullet points that I want to go over and hopefully be able to fill about an hour or so. Uh, because I'm going to be talking about uh, the title of my podcast, Right of Return, The Fate of Our People in the Colonies. Now, uh, what do I mean by that? When I say the fate of our people and our colonies, I mean, what is to be done with the descendants of Europeans now living in, say, South Africa or Australia or New Zealand or, uh, oh, I have a connection issue. I had a connection issue. I wonder, I hope that uh, the connection will be fine for, uh, for a bit now. So uh, as I was introducing, I'm going to be talking about um, the fate of people living in, say, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, even Canada, USA, and other places where descendants of Europeans have moved to and settled. What are you going to do if at some point uh, your colonial economy collapses? Say in South Africa, things are not going well for the descendants of the Europeans living there. What are you supposed to do? There is one strategy that I won't talk about today is namely to uh, get organized and push back and fight back, as many are doing in South Africa today. A lot of South Afrikaners, uh, Afrikaner people, the Boer people, they are getting organized in places like Orania, also in other places. They're meeting each other in their own new movements, really because they wish to establish a form of sovereignty for their own people, uh, rather than to be, say, uh, the victims of a regime that has come to deeply hate its former masters, if I may say so. You know, under apartheid, the white people ruled South Africa, and they did exploit the labor of the local people. But now things have reversed, right? Since, uh, uh, since 1994, I believe, the Rainbow Nation was invented, apartheid was abolished, and the Afrikaner people are now like supposedly equals, but they're not. There are now over a hundred different race laws uh, in place preventing uh, descendants of Europeans from getting jobs, for example. All right? So uh, I see the first people in my chat box coming on, so that's very interesting. Uh, what I want to do now is uh, I'm gonna read some comments from a video I made. So I made a video where I argued for giving people in the colonies, such as Afrikaner people, to, to give them a right of return. So they can return to uh, Europe or the Netherlands or Germany, depending on where you're from, where they're from. And, hey, I'm doing fine. Somebody asked me, are you doing journalism? Yeah, I'm doing fine. And I wanna, uh, I made this video where I argued that people should be allowed to come back to Europe. Say you are an Afrikaner white person and you're fed up with your local economy. It's not going well for you. Why can't you come back to the place in Europe where, you know, Europe, the Netherlands, Germany, all these countries are in great need of, of immigrants. They keep telling us that, I, you know, I'm from the Netherlands. They kept telling this since the 1990s, 1980s, 1970s even. They said, we, we need more immigrants. We need immigrants to come work in our factories. We need immigrants for all sorts of reasons because our, our population is aging and so on and so forth. But then why don't we bring back the very people who descend from us? No, instead, we are cutting them off. 
We've cut off people in South Africa in the sense that they can't get a passport to come back. And it's very hard for them even to get a visa to come back. And, you know, the whole thing um, I want to stress now is, is that I believe you can't do that. It's wrong to cut off your people who were basically um, your descendants. You use them in the colonies as long as things were going well. You uh, like the Netherlands profited from South Africa when it was under the apartheid rule. The Netherlands used South Africa, for example, as a, a shipping lane, right? And so on and so forth. There were all sorts of political reasons that were, that were there in place to benefit from. To benefit from. But I want to read to you a comment. Uh, I won't mention any personal details, but this is a comment from a woman from South Africa who wrote me a, a private message, a DM. So she, she tells me her name. I won't tell her name. It's a typical Dutch name. Like I've noticed that a lot of these Afrikaner people, they still have their typical Dutch last names. And although you might argue that, well, the Afrikaner people are not just descendants of the Dutch Boers, the Boer people, the farmers who went there, right? They're also French and German and some to some extent English and British. That's not quite true. The far majority of the Afrikaner people are literal descendants of the Dutch people. Uh, only insofar they mixed there in, in South Africa did that change a little bit. <clears throat> so she writes me, my parents became South African citizens in 1970. This is quite recent, like half a century ago, right? After her brother was born and before she was born. So she was born in South Africa. The rest of our family are all Dutch citizens living back home in the Netherlands. Her parents deceased now, and then she went to the Dutch embassy in South Africa with all her parents' papers, and neither she or her brother, who was born in the Netherlands, could obtain Dutch passports. Uh, likely because, for example, her, her brother's passport, if, she, if he had one, uh, was expired, and then they won't renew it or won't give one anymore. So she writes me, we both understand Dutch 100%, and with a little practice, we will be able to speak better Dutch again because they have Afrikaans accents. I know, you know what it took me to learn to understand Afrikaans? It was literally just three days of listening to Afrikaans podcasts because the difference between Dutch and Afrikaans is really the difference between a language and a thick dialect. And Afrikaans has a very simplified grammar. So for me as a Dutch person, it is actually simpler than Dutch and way easier to learn than say uh, German or English. The only stumbling block for me was that you have your own phrases now, your own way of saying things, your idiom, and certain words that you borrowed from the local languages are like Kosa or something. Xhosa, I don't even know how to pronounce it. But uh, other than that, I think Dutch and Afrikaans people can learn to understand each other's language within one week of practice. That's all it takes. It's really not that hard. Uh, but I mean to say here is that uh, she writes me some more personal stuff here. And I want to mention the following. She says, I would also like to feel wanted by the country of which I am a full blood. She is a Dutch person, a Dutch woman living in South Africa. And she wants to come back, but she can't because she can't get a Dutch passport anymore. Now, should we? And she says she doesn't, she doesn't feel home. She's not wanted by her home country. And she doesn't feel home. Uh, in South Africa anymore, just look at Julius Malima. Julius Malima is like a leader in South Africa, a black man, who uh, recently was heard chanting, 
kill the boar, kill the boar. They were singing this song in this arena. I think it was in Johannesburg, if I'm right. Kill the boar, kill the boar. They're calling for the murder of this Dutch Afrikaner boar population, right? <clears throat> and they say, they brush it off as, oh, it's just, it's just a song. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it, we, we sang this during the ab abolition of apartheid. That's all it is. No, this is a call for genocide. It's not a joke. Let me go to my inbox because I, so I made this video. It has like, uh, let's see, 80,000 views now. Lots of Afrikaner people are responding to it. Uh, let's see if I can read a few more. So some people argue that they should stay in South Africa to fight, right? To fight back. But I, in this podcast episode, I'm going to talk about um, those people who just want to return to Europe. And the question is, should they, should they be given the passports to return to Germany or the Netherlands or so on, right? And what's the reasoning behind this? And how does this all tie into the geopolitical gameplay that I will be getting to later in the podcast? So, okay. Let's get to this one point, by the way. Um, this notion that the Netherlands should give Afrikaner descendants living in South Africa a passport so they can return to the Netherlands. What about it? Isn't that racist? Aren't you just giving people a passport based on the color of their skin? Right? That's not quite true. You're not giving random immigrants a passport because of the color of their skin just because they're white. In fact, today we're doing the exact opposite. The European Union is mass importing people who are uh, specifically least like us. We are importing uh, almost a million Africans a year now or a million Muslims a year from the Arab world and Asians and whatnot. They can all come here upon arrival in the Netherlands. It is so that if you come as a refugee or as an asylum seeker to the Netherlands, within six weeks, you are awarded a house to live in for free, paid for by the Dutch people. Dutch people have to work for such a house. They spend 40 years of their lives working for these houses. But immigrants get houses for free. No wonder the Netherlands attracts so much immigrants. No wonder everybody wants to come to the Netherlands. You get a free house, free monthly subsidies, a free salary, free income, because you, you don't have qualifications, you don't have a job, right? Who cares? You get everything for free at the expense of the Dutch middle class, the taxpaying class. It's just absolutely insane. So, but I want to point out this, this specific, uh, interesting phenomenon. Turkey and Morocco are neighbors of the European Union, but they're not in the European Union. Although there are plans to actually assimilate them into the EU as well. And then North Africa, I'll get to that later. So Turkey and Morocco have migrated millions of their peoples to Europe, at first as guest workers during the 1960s and 70s. These guest workers were supposedly needed uh, to work in the factories. In those days, the Netherlands still had a strong industry. We no longer do. And we were making trucks and airplanes, you know, Fokker. Do you, have you heard of the Fokker airplane? And have you heard of the DAF, DAF trucks? We used to make these things and we needed workers to help us make these things. Uh, something went wrong in the Netherlands and then we became a knowledge economy, meaning our big industries, our airplane industry and our, our trains and our, our truck industry, it all died out. Lots of industry died out in the Netherlands. It was moved abroad to India or wherever. And, and so we have these, these workers uh, initially from Morocco and Turkey, guest workers. Then we have waves of immigrants and asylum seekers and then refugees from Syria and so on. They keep changing the name. Uh, but they keep coming. But here's the thing. 
Did you know that Turkey and Morocco will give all of their descendants in the EU a passport? If a child of Moroccan parents is born in the Netherlands, that child receives a Moroccan and a Dutch passport. And the same with Turkish people. They can easily get a Turkish passport. Turkey even goes so far as to draft Dutch Turks, Turkish people living in the Netherlands, into the military service. You have to do a year of military service. If you're a Dutch man, uh, Turkish man living in the Netherlands with a Turkish passport, even if you're second, third, fourth, or fifth generation, you can be drafted into the Turkish military and you have to serve the military. And then you can go back home to the Netherlands, home, quote unquote. Also, Dutch Turks, and I believe also Moroccans living in the Netherlands, because they have the passport of their homeland, they get a say in their homeland elections. Believe it or not, uh, Turkish and Moroccan people living in the Netherlands, living in Germany, they get to vote in the elections in Turkey and Morocco. Can you imagine, can you imagine for a moment us doing this for our descendants abroad in the colonies? Imagine we would give, say, Afrikaner Boer descendants living in South Africa a Dutch passport. Imagine we would draft them in the Dutch military, young men, right? Imagine we would allow them to vote in our elections. That's what Turkey and Morocco do with their descendants living in the, in the EU. Why can't we be like that for our own offspring, our own progeny in the colonies, right? So imagine Germany would give German Americans living in the USA a German passport and the right to vote in German elections, right? Imagine we would care about our people that much. That's how much Islamic countries do care about their people. Why can't we? And why is it when we even suggest doing something like this, we are called racist. But when they do it, it's just normal and you have, you're not even allowed to, to question or critique it. It's just absurd. So, uh, and I want to tie something into this. Namely, the fact that although we speak of the European colonization and tons and tons of settlers, especially during the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, moved into the colonies to South Africa or to the USA and Canada, right? That doesn't mean they all went there voluntarily. That is not true. In England, for example, there's a song called uh, Sail Me Away. Uh, there's a version of it, uh, you can find it on YouTube. Sail Me Away is about, it's a song about the 16-year-old Scottish girl, and she's going to go to Sydney in Australia, uh, halfway across the planet, to be a wife to a man, a good man there, because she's clean and so on. And so what this song is all about, it, it is actually state propaganda. During the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries, the, the Western European states cooked up propaganda to convince their people to settle in the colonies. It was not at all entirely voluntary. The, um, the initial uh, settlers who left Europe, however, most of them were Protestants. And most of these Protestants, most of these Protestants uh, were chased out of Europe by the Catholic armies. I'll give you a good example. Uh, around the time of Peter Stuyvesant, who settled in um, Manhattan Island, Manahata, right? That they took from the local, the natives, right? Around that time, Peter Stuyvesant was chased off 
by the Catholic armies of the Spanish king. Spain, Spain sent 10,000 Catholic soldiers to the Netherlands with the specific instructions to wipe out the Protestants. And that is when Stuyvesant and ships full of Protestants decide to leave. It was the same in Norway, even when, uh, when I, I don't know who it was, King Olaf or King Harold or whoever it was who introduced taxation, <clears throat> sorry, in like the 10th or the 11th century. Uh, that's why they, they settled in Iceland. When, when the uh, centralized state, the emerging centralized state in Norway began taxing the farmers, right? Because people were free up to that point. Can you imagine living free without having to pay taxes? You can be a pastoralist or a farmer. You make your own life. You, or, instead of making a living or making money, you organize your own farm. You feed your family. You feed yourself, right? And all of a sudden, the king starts telling you, you have to pay taxes because the king wants to go to war with England or Ireland or whatever, right? And that is why Norwegians, the old Norse people, started migrating in like the 7th, 6th, 7th, 8th century migrating, migrating to Iceland. And that is also why Iceland became uh, Europe's first real democracy with a real democratic parliament, the thing or the all thing. Uh, it's near Reykjavik. So why do I tell you this story? It's because when you consider the... Uh, the whole thing now. Many European people were tricked with propaganda and stories to settle in the colonies because there, there was supposed to be a better life there for them. And within a few generations, it turns around. In South Africa, for example, the Boer people, the Afrikaners, they have a very hard time surviving there right now. They're being murdered by death squads, right? I'm not saying it's, it's a genocide yet, but it's going to be, right? So you're dumped there in the colonies for political purposes because the governments in the West, the colonial governments here, decided that it would be a good idea if we had more people in the colonies. So they start shipping their people out into the colonies. And then when things go sour, all of a sudden, well, we don't want you back anymore. Or, no, no, you can't get a passport. But you know what? We'll happily take in millions and millions of mass immigrants from Africa and Islamic world and Asia and India, but not you, not our own flesh and blood. You are cut off from the mother nation. You are cut off from the mother continent, from the, from the father civilization, of the Euro Western European civilization. <clears throat> it is just completely insane that we are doing this, right? And I give you, I'll give you another example. There's a, a Dutch province in the Netherlands, in the Northeast, called Drenthe. And a group of people there just recently, I think it was 19th century or so, the Dutch government decided to send these Dutch people from Drenthe to Suriname. That's a nation in uh, the north of Latin America. They were deported. That's right. White Dutch people, because they were considered poor, were deported to one of the colonies to settle there. But what happened is these Dutch people who ended up calling themselves the Buru's, like the Boer people in Africa and, and the Afrikaner people in South Africa, these Buru people from Drenthe in the Netherlands, they were dumped there. Half of them died within a few months of the tropical diseases, of malaria and so on. They didn't have resistance to these problems. They died. They died off. There are, there are survivors now and survivors of these people. I wonder, will, you bring, will we take them back? Will we, uh, will we give them reparations? Do you think the Dutch government should pay reparations to the white people they deported to the colonies and dumped them there because they were considered too poor? Don't you think these people deserve reparations? All right? Talk about reparations, you know? 
uh, I think this is completely insane. Uh, when I reason about this difficult topic, I, f I feel, considering the fact that Europe is in need of so many migrants coming out of Africa, why don't we give our own flesh and blood passports so they can decide to return or stay? You know, if you need these many immigrants, why not bring in immigrants who speak your language? Why not bring in immigrants who look like you, who speak your language, who believe in your religion, who can read and write the Latin script? Because you, you'd be surprised how many immigrants coming to Germany today can't read and write and likely because they can only read the, the Arabic script. So they can't read the Latin script and they can't write. You know, you can't even be a truck driver in Germany if you can't read and write. You have to be able to read and write and communicate you know, you have, you know, in Germany, the traffic laws are so strict. You need a, an actual driving license to be able to drive a truck. So there's a lot of people coming out of Africa into Germany, and they are getting angry that they can't get a job as a truck driver because they don't have a driving license. It, it doesn't work like that in Europe. In Europe, you need qualifications to get jobs because the jobs are... What do you think is the real reason that European society is on a higher technological, cultural, civilizational level as the countries in, say, in Africa? What do you think the real reason is? It's because of the level of quality we put in people's education so they are able to do more intelligent, more advanced tasks. But this requires you to prove that you can do it. You, so you need an education and a diploma to prove that you can do it. And so, so that's the difference, right? You can't just come to Europe and get around and fuck around. You need to know what you're doing. This is a more, uh, this is a, a higher functioning society that requires you to have a higher intelligence, higher skill level, you know, greater ability, uh, you know, to work machinery, to operate machinery. And if you don't want to get these qualifications, you don't want to work for them, then you know, you're not getting a job. I think today, half of the immigrants who came to Germany in the past thirty years or 50 years or so, are living off of welfare. Half of the Africans, African immigrants who came to Germany in the past 50 years are living off of welfare. Primary reason is they have no qualifications and show no interest, no motivation to get the qualifications. And when the German government actually suggests that we need to start sending people back to Africa, the African nations say, no, we refuse to take back our own people. Just like the Netherlands is now refusing to take back its people from from South Africa. You know, it's all very strange. So let me go through my notes a little bit. So I favor, I favor a sort of right of return for, for our flesh and blood in the colonies, just to give them the opportunity. Say, if you have a certain education or qualifications that are in need in the Netherlands, you should be able to get a passport. It should be easy. It should be easy process. All right. And yeah, I want to touch on this a little bit. So we are importing now people who are least like us into, into Europe. And why are we doing this? Partly because Uncle Soros and the, and the Global Open Society people, they imagine that Europe may become the springboard for the Global Open Society, meaning one, there's going to be one global society that everybody will be born into it. <clears throat> and unwanted people, I, I assume, will simply uh, be aborted or sent to the gulags. You know, the, the whole advantage of nations is that if you don't like it in one nation, you can go to another. You can move around. You can escape one set of laws. If you feel oppressed 
if you feel oppressed in the USA or discriminated against in the USA, then why not try living in Africa? All right? And the reason why, why African Americans are not returning to Africa is perhaps because life is still better in the USA for them. So how about you tone it down? How about you tone down your complaints a little bit? Because right? if, if white Americans would complain about life in the USA and say it sucks, they just go back to Europe, right? And in fact, I want to make that possible. I want to make it possible for people to come back to Europe. You know? Uh, so, I find it very wrong to dump your people in a colony and then when you no longer need them for geopolitical reasons, you cut them off. It was just stupid. So I ask myself this question, like if this is all some kind of global chess game, the whole geopolitical chess game where globalist elites are using races, nations, religions, civilization, borders, whatever. They're using crisis, they're creating crisis just to play the global chessboard. I would like to know who the hell are playing this game what is their aim? Their goal is just to, to defeat all the other parties they don't like. So it's East against Western. The Western globalists want to fight the Eastern. Are they nationalists or are they also globalists? Right? Is, does China have a globalist strategy or does China simply want to resist the West and then remain China? Possible. The West definitely has the aspiration to rule the whole world. The Western elites, I mean, the Western globalists thinkers, intellectuals, whatnot. They just want to dominate the whole planet by crafting universal religion, a universal language. What's that language called? I forgot what it's called. There's this, George Soros's father worked on this uh, universal language for all mankind. The world, world, it was it's an artificial language. I forgot what it was called. Um, uh, that's so strange that the Western method is to cook up universal stories. Uh, the universal humankind, we're all from the out of Africa theory. Um, they say that all language has one origins. What if it doesn't? What if languages have their own separate origins? Just like races of people, what if we have our own separate origins? It's not hard to believe. The, the pluriform origin theory is something we used to believe in. The European scientists of the 19th century they were not at all convinced that humanity had one origin. We, they really believed that we had separate origins. We were always different. We were, we were not from one source. We've always been different. And of course, there is mixing and trade going on, but that doesn't make, make it so that you come from the same place, from the same origin. And you know, you have um, Campbell about the, the, hero, uh, the hero and the thousand faces. There's a book by this Joseph Campbell guy who uh, wrote about a universal mythology for all mankind. But again, that, whenever you hear of this, these universal stories, this and that, I, I wouldn't believe that so easily because it's probably not so. There may be in, in comparative, you know what I think in comparative analysis of mythologies and religions, you will always find some things that compare. That doesn't mean they have the same origin. It can simply be uh, interaction between different people. Say you have the Christians and the heathens, they've been living there for a thousand years, right? But they have interaction. There's trade going on. Some of them travel into each other's territory. So they kind of exchange ideas, especially the elites, of course, the kings of the Germanics and whoever, the pharaohs of the Egyptians. Not directly. They wouldn't have met each other, but through their emissaries, through their uh, uh, merchants, for example, through their trade partners, they would have been able to exchange ideas. And so what if that is how... 
you know, elements of Germanic heathenism and Norse mythology seem to overlap with Greek mythology and with ancient Egyptian mythology, not because there was one universal origin at all, but because these three big mythologies have their own origins. And then over time, over the course of a thousand years or so, they end up sharing some elements that they like about each other. And so they integrate something of the Greek mythology into Norse mythology. They integrate something of Norse mythology into whatever, right? What if that's how it went, right? So it doesn't have to be universal. Uh, I don't buy into the universal bullshit. And so if it's, a global, if it's a global chess game that we're all dealing with, that all the flows of migration we are seeing today are part of political games, and they are, then what, what's, what's this all about? Then why is Europe about to absorb 100 million Africans or more? What for? Okay, you can prop up your consumption of your capitalist society artificially by also artificially simply giving the newcomers housing and, and wealth paid for by the taxpayers who came before, right? So you have a class of, let's say, let's say the people who are earning taxes, the taxpaying class in Europe, they're predominantly white. And uh, the welfare recipient class in Europe, they're predominantly non-white. So you're, you have a transfer of wealth from those who actually worked for it to those who aren't going to work for it, which is bizarre. But why are you doing it? To prop up the artificial sales of goods and services to this class of people who otherwise would not be able to earn them or afford them due to their lack of qualifications. Okay, but then what's another reason? If there's an economic component that's obvious, the United States, for example, uses the EU market largely to sell its goods and services too, right? You have about 700 million people living in the European continent. Uh, less than that in the EU, but the continent itself is about 750 million people. That's a gigantic market, a market that also Russia is eyeing, a market that also China is eyeing. The European market is still relevant because everybody wants to sell their stuff to the Europeans because Europeans still have money. But I believe there's another reason, and that is probably a military reason. In the war between West and East, who is going to capture the African soldiers? Well, the West is hoping that by giving African immigrants housing and access to consumer goods that they didn't work for, by simply giving them this, they're trying to see it's a bribe. The Western governments are trying to bribe the African people to side with the West in case of a war against Russia, Iran, or China. However, China today is having very, very interesting, deeply connected uh, uh, ties with Africa, especially Eastern Africa, but they're moving west. Uh, France still controls the Northwest African countries. The USA still controls a lot of countries. Usually, when I say control, it's through economic blackmail, right? A lot of African nations are still being blackmailed. Their elites have been bribed and the, the people are being blackmailed into submission. I understand that's wrong. I mean, I'm not on the side of the exploiters and the colonials here. People don't, don't get that. I'm just, uh, I oppose the mass immigration of Africans into Europe because it's just either an economic scam or they're going to use these African men to try to get them, to get them to be motivated enough to go to war with Iran, Russia, and China, the Eastern enemy, so to speak, the axis of evil. I wouldn't call it that way. But I don't believe that's quite possible. Uh, an almost equal number of black Africans is never, never going to side with the USA or Europe, no matter what you give them. Already now, a lot of Africans, if you read the comments under some of my videos, you see that a lot of black people, they support Russia. They support China because China is more of a trade partner rather than a colonial, a colonizer. 
They always call the Europeans colonizers, right? They're not going to side with us no matter what you give them. You can give them access to white women. They're not going to side with the Western regimes. They're going to fight for Russia against the West. Basically, and that means you are bringing in men who are waiting for Putin's order or Xi's order to go to war with Europe. You're bringing in the Trojan horse, but let's not call it the Trojan horse. Let's call it something different. Let's call it the African giraffe. You're bringing in the African giraffe, right? It looks exotic. Everybody loves it. Children cheer for it, right? Until at night, the dark man crawl out of the giraffe's ass to destroy Europe from within. That's what this is all about. We're being colonized. Europe is being torn apart because we are surrounded by enemies at this point. Russia is a huge territory. Most of its people live in the Western European part of Russia. That's while well, you have like over 110, 120 million white people living there. They're Orthodox Christians, but they're relatively poor. And they have seen the West grow wealthy, especially since uh, the post-World War II era, all of a sudden the, the Western European middle class becomes very, very wealthy. Russians, not so much, and they are jealous, jealous as hell. It is understandable that the, the Russian soldiers were so motivated to fight Ukraine because of the looting. You could go to war, you can loot these rich, because even, yeah, even Ukraine is rich compared to Russia. So they go to Russia to loot the Ukrainian homes, and they're very happy with it. And I understand that because of the difference in uh, the real inequality in wealth is not between rich and poor living in the Netherlands. Even poor Dutch people are way better off than an average Russian. So the Russians are eyeing Western wealth because the Russians have the resources, but they're not getting paid for it. So they're very angry. The Turkish people under Erdogan, they're Islamists. They want to rebuild uh, you know, the great Ottoman Empire and take back Greece and take back Bulgaria and even Hungary, perhaps. Right? So they're trying to rebuild their empire. Uh, France is desperately trying to hold on to its African empire, like the 14 African nations in Northwestern Africa that speak French largely. But these, these nations, these vassals are revolting. They're going to fight France. They've, in Niger, they already threw out the French ambas uh, ambassador, for example. Then we have the North Africans who have always been eyeing the fertile North. North Africa is, you know, unfertile land, can't do farming very well. Northern Europe, Northern Germany, the Netherlands is nice flat land with pastures. You can do, uh, you can grow all your food there. They're eyeing the fertile North, the fertile Europe, right? Then you have the Central Africans who feel victimized by the colonizers, right? So they want to go to war. They want to go to Europe to strip us dry, to take everything they can from us, right? Then you have the Arab Islamic world. They're, angry. They're mad at Christianity, right? They're mad at the Christian colonizers trying to spread Christianity and so on. We're surrounded by enemies. We're supposed to have an ally in the USA, but the USA is just using the whole of the, all, the, whole of the EU as a, as a tool in their hands to whip to whip China, really, while flooding Europe with, with, with new consumers who are really the Trojan horse, or I say, the African giraffe. Uh, so I wondered then, yeah, what was the, geolo uh, the geopolitical purpose of mass migrating in Africans into Europe, either as artificial consumers, as replacement immigration for the aging Europeans, or simply a geopolitical gamble, hoping that they'll side with us so we can go to war with China. We can send black soldiers, right? under a French flag or a German flag or an EU flag to fight China for us, right? Do you think that's going to happen? I think that's an absolutely ludicrous idea. I.e., I wrote here, 
uh, Europe is being actively colonized. This isn't mass immigration anymore. This is colonization. But it's a strange kind of colonization. It's not a settler colonization. They're not settling and building their own cities and their own nations on European land. No, they're moving largely into the European cities like London, Paris, Amsterdam, you know, the big cities, Berlin, you know, and so on and so forth. They're moving into the cities and picking up low-class jobs, if jobs at all. I think half of them are dumped in welfare programs due to their lack of qualifications, as I mentioned before. And a lot more are... Uh, uh, a lot more are getting the lower class jobs, really, right? Now they're starting to move up into middle class jobs. Now the middle class is going to start noticing, you know, the benefits of mass immigration. Excuse me. But here's another view. If you imagine the European Union being part of the U.S. empire, and the U.S. empire is, is actively trying to expand itself because that's what all empires do. They have to keep growing. Did you know that in 1987, Morocco already applied to become a part of the European Economic Community, the EEC, the precursor to the European Union? I need to sip for a moment. And we've also been in talks with Turkey for like 30 years or so to see if Turkey can join the European Union, <clears throat> adding, I don't even know, I think they have more than 100 million people living in Turkey, or, or at least 80 million, probably more than that, 120, 140. And that's so, that's so bizarre is that Morocco and Turkey are Islamic nations with an Islamic leadership, right? They are not part of the European history or the European culture, only as enemies, <clears throat> as invaders. The Ottomans, the Turkish Ottoman Empire, they colonized Greece, Bulgaria for 500 years, Hungary for 150 years. In those days, it was actually Russia, the Russians who fought uh, the Turks to liberate Europe. <clears throat> now things are different. Now you see that Erdogan and Putin are best friends almost. And although Turkey is a member of NATO for strategic reasons, we need a big NATO country there to fight Russia unless they turn, right? Unless Turkey simply switches over to Russia and fights Europe instead. What is, what is the possibility here? Do you think Europe will be strong enough to protect itself against an alliance between Russia, Turkey, and Iran and the Saudis if they decide to go to war with Europe and simply send in the soldiers and start fighting us? Do you think they have the technological, technological capacity to do so? I think at some point they will, especially with the help of the Chinese economy. China can make made in China weaponry, but it will be it will be deadly. It will still be deadly weaponry. It's not like weapons coming out of German factories are somehow a million times more effective, especially if you don't know how to fire them. You know, the Ukrainians, you know why Ukraine lost the war against Russia or the Russian war against Ukraine? Because people get mad when I speak of the Ukraine war. The Ukrainians lost because the the men firing the weapons, controlling the tanks just weren't skilled enough. So you can give them superior weapons, but they don't know how to properly use them. You can't win. And even though the Russian weapons were less superior, it was easier to repair the tanks, the Russian tanks on the battlefield, for example. So the Russians had uh, not as fancy equipment, but they were better trained in using this, this equipment. And so no wonder they won the war, especially if they're backed with Iranian technology and uh, Chinese technology, right? 
So I think there's going to be, we are at war. The Third World War has a long, already started a long time ago. Uh, we're just waiting for it to go hot. Now, Ukraine-Russia was one battlefield. It was a battle in the world Third World War. We have another battlefront. You know what's Israel doing to Gaza? They're just annexing the territory because Gaza, like Cuba, you know the Cuban Missile Crisis where Cuba, the Russians were planting missiles in Cuba so they could shoot, right? So they could fire, uh, reach the USA. That's what Gaza is. Gaza is a, is a problem to Israel because, well, you know, Russia or China or whoever might actually have a, a missile installation there to hit Israel. And I still don't quite understand the importance of a place like Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. Jerusalem for religious reasons, but Tel Aviv, why is Tel Aviv important in terms of geopolitics? Why? Yeah. So what is even the purpose of the European Union then? I wrote that question down because in light of all, all the mass immigration, all the strange things going on in the European Union, you want to know, you know, What's it even for? And the European Union is, like I said, it's a springboard to become a global open society. But in order to achieve this, you have to defeat the evil nationalists like Russia. Uh, and I think what's going to happen is Europe is going to slowly expand itself to even include places like India, Georgia, Azerbaijan, Turkey. They're going to try to assimilate, yes, they're going to try to assimilate all these countries and places and here, here's why I already spoke a little bit about watch out for universalist narratives because they're usually lies. You know about the Indo-European connection? What if there was no Indo-European connection? What if there was some trade and mixing going on but no real connection? Uh, they're going to do the same thing with <clears throat> Georgia. They're going to say that the people of Georgia who nowadays, there are people who look very white in Georgia, uh, but there are also a lot of people there who are just related to the Turkic people, Turkish people, Turkic people. Uh, so you can say that Georgians are somewhat white people, but they're going to cook up stories where they say they have to justify why would a country like Georgia or Azerbaijan or Turkey belong to Europe? They're going to say that Turkish people are white people. So they're going to cook up all these universalistic stories like, oh, we're all descendants of the same you know, Western hunter-gatherers, or we're all, we're all Caucasian hunter-gatherers, we're all Caucasians. And I think these big labels like Caucasians, the word Caucasian effectively also includes Arab people. These are very big labels that don't, don't do justice to the actual reality. When I speak of apes in Africa, if I would not make the distinction between gorillas and chimps and bonobo, you know, I would not be doing justice to the actual racial diversity and the real difference of these people. The fact that chimpanzees and bonobo and gorillas generally do not share each other's, each other's territories. They live separately. Don't you think it's that, that different anyway between, say, Europeans, Arabs, Africans, Asians? Aren't we that different? I always feel that the difference, the re one reason why we downplay the difference between people is precisely to make a universal government possible. Because if we would accept or admit that people are very different, and perhaps we shouldn't live together, and especially not in the same cities, all right, well, then you don't have an argument for globalism anymore, right? I need a little sip. I 
I am almost done with my bullet points, and I think I will uh, have a look at the, at the chat box everywhere because I see a lot of people uh, interacting with each other on the chat. And I'm still learning how to do live shows, okay? So I I'm, I'm, don't quite know how to interact with the chat and the people yet. But uh, hello, Rosie D. Psychologist. <clears throat> Here, someone says, uh, one thing that's interesting that eventually we will reach a, reach a boiling point and race conflict will occur. Yeah, I definitely believe that, yeah. And someone mentioned uh, Russia's reverse engineering the captured Western technology. You know what I think? Uh, they, may be, they may be reverse engineering, but uh, you know what I think? I think the latest technology coming out of China is superior to what we have in Germany. The whole idea of German technology being so good was true in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, but no longer. I don't believe it. Western technology in many fields, say out of the top 100 fields of t technology, maybe the West still leads in 10 of them. And in 90 of them, the Chinese are beating us. It's just not true anymore that we are so good. <clears throat> Someone asks the question, like, does the USA stand a chance against the browning of America? I think the southern states are lost already. Like, if you look at places like Texas, and uh, I'm not very familiar with all your state names, Florida, whatever, California, those places, if you look at uh, the births in the hospitals, uh, and they register register them by ethnicity, it's gone. It's like 60, 70% non-white. Whereas though in the central northern provinces and uh, states, I mean, uh, there you still have a majority white births. But the number of states where the number where that still have a majority white birth rate, uh, ooh, it's dwindling. It's going to be, you're going to have uh, a column of white people living in the center. The coastal areas are lost. The southern states are lost. And then you have in the north, you will have some uh, a white enclave. I wonder how strong and how big it will be, but you're losing this, you know? Somebody wants me to marry their sister, but you gotta send pictures first because I'm not gonna do that blind. Uh, right, so I'm gonna finish my talk here because I wanted to mention everything I've said so far brings me to an argument that we may perhaps need to transform the European into something entirely new, no longer a tool for geopolitical war against Russia and China, which comes at the expense of the European natives. But what if we make Europe about the European natives first? We have a massive white population in Europe. We still have potential, possibility to prop up the birth rate, for example, to bring in people from the colonies to also to help prop up the birth rates. Uh, and why would we want to do that? In order to make a stand precisely against this this circle of enemies, Russia, Turkey, North Africa, Central Africa, the Arab world, the Islamic world, India perhaps, you know, in order to, to reassert ourselves as Europeans and to let the world know, no, our culture is no longer for sale. Our lands are no longer for sale. And what we're going to do here is that um, there used to be the Holy Roman Empire. I'm not going to go into the name and the saying that it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but it existed for a thousand years, ruled by Germanic emperors, German emperors from the 800, starting with Charlemagne, up to 806, when I believe Francis II was deposed, Emperor Francis II. And so the whole idea of the of the Holy Europe, uh, Holy Roman Empire is we can turn it into a Holy European Empire, or the Holy Empire and it shall be referred to as he, him. 
because the US is us and then Europe will be the holy empire as he, he and us. And so why, why do I bring this up? Why do I bring up a revival of the Holy Roman Empire in Europe? Because before the age of colonialism started, the central column running from the Netherlands and Denmark to Northern Italy was uh, the backbone of Western civilization. And it balanced the people to the East with the people to the West. The Western nations became the colonial nations, and so the balance of power shifted to the West, to the, now to the USA especially, to the British Empire for a long time, and then the USA, at the expense of the East to some extent. What I believe is that with a dwindling US power in the world and a rising China, Chinese power in the world, there's going to be a moment where there will be kind of a balance. Maybe we have already achieved it. A balance, of, uh, temporary balance between East and West, between China and the USA. This gives Europe an opportunity to reestablish itself as that great mediator between East and West, no longer on just a European continental scale as before the colonial age, but now on a global scale. In the post-colonial age, Europe becomes the balancer, the arbiter, the arbitrator, the mediator between East and West, between China and the USA. And this could potentially make Europe extremely powerful again. Everything will have to go through us. Everything will involve us again. We're going to put ourselves back into the seat of power. And I think this will be possible precisely if we accept that the material age has come to an end, that we will no longer dream of new iPhones and we will no longer worship our idols on TV or our soccer heroes or our pop stars. Instead, we realize that we will find the strength within ourselves, that we Europeans still possess that intense spiritual energy with the help of our religion, whether it be your Norse mythology or Christianity. I say Christianity should be the religion and we can have mythology, heathen mythology as a way to invigorate the religion so that we feel very strong on the inside. In our minds, we tap into uh, cosmic forces right, that will allow us to live without as much material wealth as we've been used to, but we will become spiritually, spiritually so much stronger that precisely because of that, we put ourselves back in power. And this is why I favor, this, you know, my podcast started about uh, 50 minutes ago with the argument that we need uh, to give our descendants, our flesh and blood in the colonies, a right to return to Europe. Because we are going to strengthen Europe again. We're going to make Europe strong again. Right? It wouldn't be so much as a Europe first. It would be more as a Europe above. We put Europe above the others. We don't need to be first. We will be above the others as basically the dominating, governing civilization that will basically give peace to the rest of the world. This is our mission. To be, once again the drivers of progress, right, and exploration. And I'm going to say something funny here, like, I, I think that the first men and women to colonize planet Mars are not going to be Chinese people or Americans or mixed race people. They're going to be Christian Europeans. So that's, those are all my notes. <laughs> Johannes is one of the few great thinkers left. Yeah, well... Most people think I'm crazy, but we'll see about who's really crazy, huh? 
Uh, so this was, okay, I've been talking for 50 minutes. This was my podcast. I might, I'm going to see if people are going to interact a little bit. Uh, I might answer some questions if I can go through it. Yeah. Uh, let's see if I can open the chat box here. Uh, I will put my uh, podcast on YouTube as well. The replay will be there. I'll put some clips on my TikTok. Both of the usernames are at the great Johannes. And uh, well, you can uh, if you want to support me, you can get a paid subscription on www.jmk.info. And I know uh, I already have three paying subscribers. I'm very happy because I did the math. If I had like 200 subscribers paying $8 a month, I could pay rent and food and it would be completely financially independent. To me, financial independence just means that I can cover all my expenses and then I am creatively free. I can then spend my mind on making more podcasts, doing more videos, writing more, making more music, doing whatever I can do to truly get, get our people motivated. Right? Let's see. Uh, Elon Musk knows our struggles. Yeah, he is. He is. Saying a lot of good things, right? Elon Musk, yeah. Though I wonder, uh, he's definitely not friends with the Biden administration. They don't like him at all. Someone asks where you can put the question. You can write here. If you're on TikTok, you can write the questions here. I see your questions here. Yeah, well, Elon is an apartheid beneficiary. I don't know how, don't exactly how that works. Yeah. Nice studio here. Yeah, this is just my uh, cabinet closet here. Or, so, is it worth voting in the upcoming Dutch elections? Yeah, well, I guess you should vote at the very least to let them know who you're not interested in. But on the other hand, I think the Netherlands is compromised as a nation. The Netherlands is simply a country run by the World Economic Forum as an experiment, as an experimental garden where they try stuff out. And if it works on the on the relatively diverse Dutch population, or then they can, then they can do it in any other, uh, in any other European country. It's just a, a play garden for them, you know? All right. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up. You can, uh, I will probably be back next Thursday, 8 PM European time. That is uh, UTC plus two. Thanks for watching. And, uh, I think it was great. <laughs>